Hey guys, good to worship with you this morning. The power of that song, I hope, is something that just resonates throughout the day. Go ahead and grab a Bible, grab your phone, uh, and you can go to the letter of Colossians. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you might want to grab a Bible, go to the back of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. Uh, lay that in your lap. We're going to be in Colossians 3 today. We're going to continue our conversation. As you're doing that, kind of get a piece of paper, a pen, we're going to take some notes. Let me tell you about a couple exciting things this Tuesday, we have FX, Family Experience, opportunity for parents to worship with kids here at the church. Love for you to bring your kids. If you're a parent, come and join us. Uh, then we're going to have the first Tuesday in September, Communion. We're going to celebrate communion together, so I'd love for you to come, and we just worship Jesus through celebrating communion together, uh, so I'd love to invite you to be a part of that. We're in this conversation going through uh, the letter of Colossians. Here, here's what you need to know. If you've been hanging out with us anytime, you know this. Like, sometimes our conversations are topical, like pick a topic and say, okay, what does the Bible say about it? Other times we take a letter and we say, hey, let's just kind of go through this letter verse by verse. Both are good right? Both are beneficial. One of the things about going through a letter like we're doing now is you just take what's next. You just take the passage that comes next in the letter. It forces you to go through stuff that eh, might be easy to skip <laughs> and might be easy to avoid. Such might be the case today. I don't know, right? Uh, for this series, I asked Pastor Adam he preached a couple of weeks ago. I asked him to structure it. In other words, he kind of planned it out, and uh, then he got those who would be preaching in it, and he gave the assignments, so to speak. He gave us our passages that we would be preaching on. I didn't pay much attention to it. Totally trust Pastor Adam, right? And so I uh, got my assignments for the series. I was in preaching in a different series and didn't really look till. Like two weeks ago, when I began to look at what my assignment was for this week. And as I started prepping, I opened up his email and he gave me the passage. And the passage that he asked me to preach on was Colossians 3. And it says, begin in verse 18. And so I just laid it on my desk at my home. And here's what it says. You have your Bible open. You can follow along. It says, wives, submit to your, yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I stopped, I stopped and said out loud in my office, Pastor Adam, you dog, is what I said, right? I thought, man, this is the one you, you gave to me. But I'm really excited about this passage because it goes on to say this, right? It doesn't just say that. It says, husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. And then it says, children, right? Go get your kids. Get them in here to listen to the sermon, right? Obey your parents and everything. This pleases the Lord. Fathers. And, and then, parenthetically, parents, don't embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, well, we'll talk about that. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart, reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong, they're going to be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, okay, bosses, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, Paul, in this part of Colossians, is going to spend 
his time focusing on the places where we spend most of our time. Two places we spend most of our time, home and work. That's the two places, right? And so he's going to spend time focusing on the two places that you and I spend most of our time. And he's going to focus on three relationships, right? Husbands and wives, uh, parents and children. And then he, he says masters and slaves. And we're going to talk about that. Contextualized, it's going to be bosses and workers. Now, before we kind of press into this, a fascinating passage, a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we need to zoom out before we zoom in. Uh, if you've been hanging out with us online, you know that we've been learning some things. We've been learning some math and some poetry. Like if, if you hung out with us last week, I mean, how many of you out there knew Pastor Greg was a published poet? I didn't know that till last week, right? And he taught us a haiku. Uh, a week before that, we learned some math. Uh, for us to understand what Paul is saying here, we got to zoom back out. So let's do that for a second. I want you to let your eyes go up to chapter 3, verse 3. Very important phrase. He says, for, your, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Here's what he's saying. The minute you say yes to Jesus, you died with Christ and now your life is hidden in him. We used this illustration a couple weeks ago. That the minute I say yes to Jesus, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness, complete fulfillment, complete freedom. In Jesus, I'm saved. In Jesus, I am satisfied. In Jesus, I am safe, secure, right? That's what he's saying. And, and, and what Paul is doing in Colossians 3 is he's saying this. So because of that, we put to death these things that he mentions in Colossians 3. Not in order to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. We put them to death. We hang them at the cross. And then we put on compassion and kindness and humility. Not to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. Uh, basically, then he ends the section Pastor Greg taught us with two other key phrases. This is so important for where we're going today. So then... Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Jesus, this message of Jesus, dwell among you richly. Make sure you're rooted in that. Make sure it doesn't drift and become an accessory, but that it's the priority. It's what your life is rooted in as you teach and admonish one another. What he's saying is this, is that when the peace of Christ rules in your heart and when the word of Christ dwells in your life richly, here's what happens. You smell like Jesus. <laughs> like you smell like Jesus. And that leads him to say verse 17. And so then whatever you do, whatever, and Pastor Greg taught us this, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's saying, whatever you do, don't let this become the accessory and that the priority. Whatever you do, this is what my life is rooted in. Let the peace of Christ rule, the message of Christ dwell, so that whatever you do becomes a response of worship for what he did for me. So it is. And when he says that, whatever you do, he's saying this in the passage we're reading today, that Whatever you do, even being a husband, even being a wife, even being a child, even being a parent, 
even being a boss, even being an employee, do all in the name of the one who rules in your heart. Do all in the name of the one whose message dwells in you richly. Here's what Paul's saying. Write this down. No slide for it. There's no slide for it, but write this down somewhere. He said, I want you to create a stink at home and at work, but maybe not the way you're used to creating a stink. <laughs> because he's saying when the peace of Christ rules in you, when the message of Christ dwells in you richly, you'll bring the aroma of Jesus to your marriage. You'll bring the aroma of Jesus to your children. You'll bring the aroma of Jesus to your workplace. Let's just break this apart. Let's just have fun with it, break it apart. He starts with the family. He starts with the family, right? And he starts with husbands and wives. Now, if you want to understand God's idea of family, we got to do some math again. Can we do that? Like, Pastor Greg can have the poetry, right? Uh, he can have the haiku, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, Last week, I came to learn a haiku. You know, I don't know, something like that. But, but, but I like math. And when you look at God's story, God designed the family, and there's some basic math to understand God's design from the very beginning of this story to the end. When it comes to marriage, it's all about addition. God's design is one man plus one woman equals one marriage. <laughs> That's his design. The two become one, right? And, and then when it comes to the family, it's all about multiplication. That one husband multiplying with one wife equals one family, right? And so that's God's design. And he then begins talking about the family. And the family begins with husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. And here's what he says. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, but don't stop there, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Now, here's something interesting. Paul is writing this to a church that he had never met. But we have a map here. I just want to show you this, this map because this church is in Colossae. And he more than likely is writing this at the same time that he would have been in a place called Ephesus, about 100 miles apart. Why I find that interesting is because he wrote a book to those people too. He spent time with them. He didn't know, he, did, he had not been to Colossae. And so what's interesting is if he's there at the same time while he's writing this, a lot of what he was saying to the church at Ephesus, he said to the church at Colossae. In fact, let me show you what I mean. In Colossians 3, it says this to wives. Just look at the parallel. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But look at what he says to the church at Ephesus. For wives, this means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then he says, verse 33, and the wife must respect the husband. Well, that's special, <laughs> isn't it? Right? Like you're thinking, wow, I'm glad I tuned in today, right? But, but here's what we've already established. Our understanding of how to apply this is directly connected to our response to Jesus. This is very important. So we got to answer some questions. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Let's just jump in. The very first thing we got to, to ask ourselves is, who is this written to? Who is this written to? And I want you to write this down somewhere. It's written to wives, not husbands. 
That's important. It's written to wives, not husbands. It is the voluntary response of worship from a wife to her husband as her act of worship to Jesus. Nowhere are husbands told to tell their wives to submit to them. So if, if, if you're watching this with your wife and you elbowed her, oops, like, like back up, rewind, right? Like this, if you're, if you're trying to think of, of a Christmas gift for your wife, this don't get this verse on a coffee cup and give it to her Christmas, right? That's not your place, not your job. This is written to wives, period. But it begs a second question, uh, what doesn't this mean? And it's important that I say this because if you're watching the news, you see what's going on in Afghanistan and you see a whole culture of people that demean and degrade women. Women are second-class citizens. And so when you read this, you're like, is that what that's talking about? Listen, this doesn't say, nor does it mean, women submit to all men. That's not what he says here. It doesn't say women are not equal to men. It's not what it's saying. It doesn't say women aren't as valuable as men. It's not what it's, it's not what he's saying. God's very clear about that. It doesn't say, wife, your husband is always right. Somebody out there give me an amen, <laughs> right? That's not what it says. It doesn't even say you should enable your husband in his bad behavior. It's not what it means. The word that he uses here, this is important. It, it comes from the Greek word, hupotasso. You can forget that, but it was like this Greek military term. And it talks all about structure and recognizing the structure and the organization and design. And so that I'm going to arrange myself in the order that the army had in that case. Well, God's order is that somehow men husbands in their home would take this position of leadership. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And he says, wives, I want you to submit to your husbands. What's he mean? Well, write this down. Here, here's, here's what it is. The husband and the wife both have a Jesus role to play in the marriage. And submission is a wife's Jesus response to her husband's God-given role. That's what it is. Submission is a wife's Jesus response to God's call on her husband to lead in their home. It's allowing the peace of Christ to rule in your heart and the message of Christ to dwell in your home as you respond in a way that's fitting to the Lord. I would suggest this, that submission, and we're going to talk about this, is simply the response that creates the aroma of Jesus in your marriage. You're saying, what is submission? I just do everything he says. I just do it. No, it's not at all what it is. It's just I recognize that God has given him a role. And so what I'm going to do is recognize that role. I'm going to respect that role. And I'm going to then do everything I can to help him attain to that role as the leader in our home. Notice on this little statement here, it's her response. This is so key. A little minor point, not her role. Is that all I'm supposed to do is be a submissive? No, it's just her response to her husband's role. God makes it clear in Scripture that when he created 
woman, the wife, he created her to be a helper. Now, some of you are like, well, that's done even better, right? But, but, but I got to tell you this, that when he created the, the woman uh, to be the helper, right from the beginning of God's story, he said, here's man, he's alone, that's not good. And so he created woman, and the word is easer. The Hebrew word is easer, right? Say that out loud. Go ahead. Easer, right? But it's the same word used to describe God. Uh, listen to this passage. No one is like the God who rides on the heavens to help you. Same word. Uh, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my easer come from? My easer, my help comes from the Lord, right? Uh, basically, uh, this word easer is a counterpart, somebody who comes alongside to help. And so the man needed help. And so God's ideal in marriage is that a man's wife help him just as God helps them who need him, encouraging him, admiring him, giving him support, helping him be all that God designed him to be. Submission is just her Jesus response to the role God gave him in their home. Now, now look what he says to the husband. Colossians 3 says, okay, husbands, Love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Now, he has a lot more to say to husbands when because he spent like two and a half, three years in, in Ephesus. Look what he says to the church at Ephesus. He says, the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, what is he saying? Well, remember, each has a Jesus part to play in the marriage. And so here's what he's saying to husbands. A husband's Jesus response is to love his wife like Jesus as he fulfills his God-given role to lead in his family. <laughs> that, that, that's it. A husband's role is to lead the way Jesus leads and to love the way Jesus loves. Uh, I, I do this tons of times with people, couples in my office, but I'll do it for you here. And you can kind of stop this and kind of, this is worth writing down. But God's picture of marriage is that the role for the man is to lead like Christ, lead like Jesus. And so what does that mean? Well, I'm going to love my wife like Jesus. Well, how, how do I love my wife like Jesus? Well, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. I'm going to serve her, not to get a response from her, not in response to something she's done for me. I'm going to serve her because I've been served by Jesus more than I could ever imagine. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to sacrificially love her. Like, I'm going to show my love. I'm not going to just say, love you, babe. <laughs> I, I heard this statement this week. It says, uh, love unshown is love unknown. I, write that. That's worth writing down. That's free. Love unshown is love unknown. Like, I'm going to sacrificially give of myself to my wife. That's how I'm, I'm going to leverage my life for the sake of my wife. I, I, write this word down. Uh, in a sanctifying way, I'm going to love my wife. 
I'm gonna cultivate a beauty within and without. Her relationship with Jesus is gonna matter and I'm gonna love her in a way that her love with Jesus grows every day she's married to me. Uh, you can write this word, serving, sacrifice, sanctifying. Let's just go ask this, man. Studying. I'm going to study my wife so that as much as I know her today is nothing compared to how much I know her a year from today. First uh, Peter 3 says, Husbands, live with your wives in a way to know them. Uh, this is all free marriage counseling, right? But, but I honestly believe it, it, it's never okay for a, a husband who's a follower of Christ to simply say to his wife, I just don't understand you because what Peter was saying in 1 Peter 3, live with them in a way that understands them. Help me understand, sweetheart, why this bothers you so much. Help me understand, sweetheart, why it is that you want to do that instead of that. Help me understand why you responded this way. Help me understand. That's what he's saying. So the husband's role is to lead how? Like Christ, I'm going to let... That's what Jesus did. He leveraged his life. And the role of the wife is to help, be a helper like God. And her response is submitting to his God-given role in a way that is helpful, recognizing his role, right? Recognizing she has an important part to play in that. You see, that's what he's saying here. Now, what's interesting is this, okay? And before, before we leave this, he says, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives, uh, we'll leave this picture up here a second. He's saying if, if somehow you look at your role, first of all, you never, it's never are you told to tell her to submit. Never. But he says if you see this as a reason to be harsh instead of leveraging your life to serve, you've missed the point. He's saying don't, it's not about get loud, bow up, posture, threaten, intimidate. He's saying don't belittle her to humiliate her, build her up. He's saying, don't get big to intimidate her. <laughs> He's saying, serve her. He's saying, don't get physical to hurt her. Don't be sarcastic with her to make her point. Don't be dismissive of her to minimize her. That's what he's saying. He said, this is God's ideal. And you know what? When that starts spinning, two become one. And it looks a lot like something that the day you get married, you wear on your finger. Two become one. It's fascinating. God's ideal is one plus one equals one. One man plus one woman, one marriage. And in this constant mutual giving and leveraging my life for each other, that's where a, a family is multiplied. Now, now here's the deal. For some of you, you're, you're listening to me, you're like, oh, that's not my reality. And I, I hear you. Some of you men, let's just get real for a second. Some of you men, your husbands, you're like, I don't got a Colossians 3.18 wife. You're, you're already like, man, my wife's not like that. Well, I would suggest this. Before you focus on whether or not she's a Colossians 3.18 wife, I need to ask, does she have a Colossians 3.19 husband? See what I'm saying? And some of you wise men are like, man, I don't, have a, I don't have a husband like that. I don't have a Colossians 3.19 husband. Well, before you 
get so focused on that, I think I need to ask, does he have a Colossians 3.18 wife? <laughs> right? I mean, this is God's picture, his design. Some of you aren't married. And I can't think of a more important discussion to have than with singles. Because for some of you who aren't married, this is God's design in marriage. I just tell you this, like outside of giving my life to Jesus as my Savior and Lord, the second best and most important decision I ever made in my life was who I married. Right? And so I would look at some of you that are single and say, if you're a woman, look for somebody who's going to lead like Jesus, love like Jesus. If you're a guy, look for somebody who's going to help like God, who's going to recognize God's design so that two can become one. Now, it's in this picture that God designed for families to happen. It's in the security of this mutual giving that families happen. That's what he's saying. Two become one, and then they multiply. And so then he begins to talk to the family. Look what he says. Verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents. And everything, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. He talks to parents and children now, right? So he talks about it, parents and children. And the attention goes to the family. He says the aroma of Jesus shows up in the parent-child relationship. Now, he begins with the kids, right? So if you need to stop this and go get your kids, do it, right? <laughs> so I get it. But, but he says, I want children to obey their parents, uh, in Ephesians, he the parallel passage says, children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. And he says, honor father and mother, first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth, right? Uh, what's he saying? Here's the principle. I want you to write it down this way. Obedience is a child's Jesus response. Kids, you have a Jesus response to his or her parents' God-given role obedience, if you're a child still living in your home, is your Jesus response to your parents' God-given role. This is what it means to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. The message of Jesus dwell in your home so that the aroma of Jesus fills your life. Little children honor their parents with their obedience. Now you're saying, well, I'm not little anymore. Older children honor their parents, Ephesians, with loyalty and thankfulness, recognizing their parents' role in their life. Uh, just a word, uh, and then I want to move on to the parents. But if a child's obedience is, first of all, pleasing to God, Colossians 3, and then Ephesians 6, if it's right... Doesn't it stand to reason, parents, that we ought to call our children to obedience? Honestly, like, like there's something that's taught in that. Like, that's what he's saying. Like, we have this awesome opportunity with our kids. Now, there are some kids who may be listening to this, and I would say this. It says, obey them in everything. And there's this assumption here, like, okay, well, what if my parents are asking me to do something, telling me to do something that's illegal, immoral, or abusive? And I would just simply say this, we must obey God rather than men. When it's something along the lines of immoral, illegal, or abusive, in fact, if, if you're listening to this and, 
and you're in an abusive situation, I'm asking you to call for help. If your parents are asking you to do something illegal, I'm asking you to call for help, right? But what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about homes where Christ is at the center, and he says, children, obey your parents. Recognize their God-given role. Now, look what he says to parents, and he, he really leans in on fathers. The Greek word here is kind of interesting. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. He just, he just that, That's all he said. He's like, don't bitter them. You'll discourage them. Uh, New Living Translate, don't aggravate your children. A New American Standard Version of the Bible says, don't antagonize your children. King James says, don't provoke your children to anger. Uh, you ever stop and think about this? Just, this is for free, but write these things. You ever think about how we as parents and dads, let's let this lean into us, but as parents, that we can embitter and discourage our kids. You ever think about how we can do that? There's all kinds of ways, right? Uh, let me give you several ways. Uh, I think I have five here that all begin with the letter I, just so we remember them, huh? I can ignore them. You want to discourage your child and embitter them, ignore them. Uh, downplay the power of your presence in their life. When I coached, I coached football for 14 years. <clears throat> I always met with the parents before the season, and uh, I would always tell them the same thing. Don't minimize your presence in the stands because every young man, no matter how big and tough he thinks he is with his shoulder pads on and helmet, the very first thing he does when he comes out and stands on the sideline is this. I promise you, this is what he does. What's he doing? He's looking for his parents. Did they come to see me? Right? You, you want to discourage your parents. Just don't show up, or, or your children. Just don't show up in the snapshots. That matter. Ignore them. I would say a second way to discourage or embitter them is intimidate them. Scare, scare the obedience into them. You're bigger than them. Fear, yell, scream. Like, just scare them into conformity. You begin to discourage and embitter them. Uh, another way is to insult them. You can ignore them. You can intimidate them. I, I would say insult them. Criticize them. Devalue them. Here's what happens. Here's why I know that. Uh, you get old enough and have enough conversations, you know this. Uh, you begin to form a tape that they just continue to play in their brain. I had a, a, a man in my office, I don't know, maybe in his 40s, and he could not get out of his head his dad saying to him on the pitcher's mound, you'll never amount to anything, you'll never amount to anything, you'll never amount to anything. And he was convinced, I'll never amount to anything. I'll never amount to anything. And he was trying so hard to make his dad proud, and his dad was already dead. See what I'm saying? It's, it's like you can embitter them by insulting them and sarcastic jabs them and like, dude, you know. Another way is this, indulge them. Never say no to them. Ne never say no to them. And, and all of a sudden, you begin to create a, a bit, because they never run up against a wall. And you're like, well, they seem to like that. They really like me when I don't, when I, when I don't say no to them, right? 
Yeah, they like you now, but eventually they're going to become adults who run into all kinds of walls who never learned under your roof and influence what it meant to run into a wall, have someone say no. And so when they learn that for the first time as an adult, they become embittered and discouraged, right? Yeah, so just never say no to them. Set up a life that's always comfortable for them. I really warn you about, if you're a parent, just listening to this, I would really warn you about this. Like, sometimes as parents, indulging them is like, we try to make everything just so, just comfortable. I remember uh, we were raising uh, our kids when they were little in uh, Indiana, and the school district we were in, I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but uh, parents could uh, request certain teachers, which means this, you could request not to have certain teachers because those teachers are hard or those teachers are disciplined, whatever. And so uh, we would get asked every year, hey, uh, your kid's going into second grade, and man, did you hear this teacher, and did you request this teacher, and right? And, and the goal is this, I want to set up my kid's life so that they are always comfortable, always have it just so. Now, this was just our preference, but we, we never requested teachers. We figured, oh, whoever they get is who God wants them to have. And some of them were more challenging than others. And what it gives you the opportunity to do is teach your children how to navigate different personalities, environments, and circumstances, right? You want to embitter your kids, just indulge them. I would say this, you want to embitter your kids down the road, just idolize them. Put them in the place where Jesus belongs. And Jesus as an accessory. Revolve the entire schedule and home around them. That's our culture, right? We, we idolize kids and it's all about, and I want to make sure they have everything that I didn't have. And that's not always the best motto. Because what ends up happening is you place upon them expectations that they can't carry. And all of a sudden you begin to live through them in a way that they feel this pressure to give you significance to make you successful. You see, that's what he's saying. There's all kinds of ways we embitter them. We, we create unrealistic expectations for them. We never show them affection, publicly humiliate them. Uh, all kinds of ways. He says, don't embitter them. Look how he says Ephesians. He says, don't exasperate your children. But then he, in Ephesians, gives the positive. Instead, bring them up. That's, that's a parent's job. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Here's the principle. Coaching is a parent's Jesus role in response to receiving their child as a gift from God. Your child is a gift from God. My role as a parent is to coach, to help, to train my child. Uh, let me state it this way. Uh, this is worth writing down, so if you've got to rewind and whatever, it says, the authority as a parent given to me by God is an authority given to me as a gift to my kids. I, I want to leverage my life to bring my kids up in the Lord. I want to posture my life to raise my kids up. I want to submit my needs so that I can bring them up, so that they can stand on their own two feet physically, emotionally, spiritually. I met a couple one time in, when I was uh, doing uh, pastoring in Indiana, and they were expecting their first child, and they said, we have a parenting philosophy. I said, what's that? This kid is not going to change our life, our routines. They're, we're just going to throw them into the already 
established routines that we have. You know, like, well, let me know how that goes, you know? <laughs> That's not the way it works, right? Like a parent rearranges things, leverages it to train them up, right? The, that means the goal of parent, parenting is to gradually transition from control, when I'm taking them everywhere, to influence in relationship, my child's life. And some of your parents listening, the reason some parents have no influence is that you never exercise and embrace your authority. The reason others have no influence is you're still trying to exercise authority, but you've never cultivated a relationship. So the question becomes, how do I use my authority? Well, it's a great question, and Ephesians uses two words. These are worth pointing out. He says, it's training. That's The word is padia. You can forget that. It means discipline, though. It means to hold someone's feet to the fire, to inject consequences for the purpose of teaching. I don't have time to flesh it out, but write this down right uh, in your notes. Hebrews chapter 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 12 and 13. Here, here's, here's what I would tell you. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12 in particular, beginning in about verse 4 or 5, it says this. It talks about the, the discipline the Lord has for us as children. And it says certain things about discipline. It says it shouldn't be taken lightly, that discipline is something that we take seriously. That discipline in our child's life is surrounded by love. It's selfless. It cultivates respect. That discipline is something that trains their heart. I, I, some of you have smaller children out there. Listen, I would say this. It is your job as a coach to padia, to train, to discipline. And, and sometimes that's hard. And sometimes it's painful for you. You say, that's, that, that is part of your role in response to God giving you the gift of your child. The second word he uses is instruction. And, and that word means to counsel, to train. There's nothing worse than not knowing what you're supposed to do. When I was coaching, there's nothing worse than putting a player on the field and he has no idea what he's doing. It's my job, right, to, to help children, my children, know what God has to say and how they play a part in it. Paul says, don't exasperate your kids to anger by never disciplining them. And don't exasperate your kids, embitter your kids, by never taking the time to tell them what God's design and desire for them is. That's what he's saying. Or they'll become discouraged. This is the last thing, and, and for the sake of time, we'll make shorter work of this, but he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Can I just make a contextual comment? Uh, the... You're saying, oh man, what's that about? Well, there would have been several kinds of slaves, right? The Romans would have conquered and they would have made slaves of the people they conquered. But there would have even been uh, slavery in first century Judaism, like bond servants, like that's how you paid off a debt, right? And uh, there would have been this understanding of you, you, you belong to that person until you paid off your debt, if you owed a debt to them. And so... It's more the flavor that he's talking about here. He says, it's, it, you can maybe apply this more to like bosses and workers in our, in our particular context. 
He says, do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. He starts with workers and he's saying, when the peace of Christ rules in our heart and the message of Christ dwells, it affects our work and the aroma of Jesus shows up at the workplace. And, and here's the principle. The principle is this. Worship is my response to Jesus as I carry out my, and this will be key in a minute, primary role at work. He's saying, I bring the sweet aroma of Jesus to work when I see my work as worship. And when I see my work as worship because Jesus is at the center, right? And when, when I see my work as worship then he says, I'm going to do my best, not when the boss is just simply looking, but, but I'm going to serve because I know Jesus, the one I'm ultimately serving, is always present. Then he does something almost shocking. He addresses masters. Verse 1, chapter 4, he says, Masters, you provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, the way he says in Ephesians 6 is, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That's interesting. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. He says, I want you to treat the slaves in the same way, workers with respect, and remember, with God there's no favoritism. What he's saying is this, bosses, masters, leverage your authority for your employees' benefit. That if you're a boss, a manager, a supervisor, you bring the sweet aroma of Jesus to the workplace by the way that you lead. And he's saying the way you do that is to remember that both you and others, you, you have a master and you're serving Jesus. If you own your own company, you realize that ultimately the one who owns the company is Jesus. And so whether I boss or work, I do it all for his glory with all of my heart. That's what he's saying. And he's simply saying this, look back at the statement, he's saying worship is my response, so it's for Jesus as I carry out my primary role at work. Well, what's my primary role at work? Go ahead and answer it out loud. Go ahead. Well, here's what, here's what Jesus would say. My primary role at work is to bring glory to him and put skin on the gospel. Honestly, that's a little upside down from the way some of us see our work. Some of us who would say we're followers of Christ would say, I'm a truck driver who happens to be a Christian, right? I'm a secretary who happens to be a Christian. I'm a teacher who happens to be a Christian. I'm a plumber who happens to be a Christian. I'm an electrician who happens to be a Christian. And yet I think what he's saying is this, is my primary role is this. I'm a follower of Christ whose primary role is to bring glory to God and put skin on the gospel who happens to be a truck driver. I'm a follower of Christ who happens to be an electrician. I'm a follower of Christ who happens to be a secretary. I'm a follower of Christ who happens to be a stay-at-home mom. I'm a follower of Christ who happens to be you fill in the blank. And what he says is this, is that when this is at the center, the sweet aroma of Jesus begins to fill my home, my marriage, 
my relationship with my kids. And this is at the center. The sweet aroma of Jesus begins to fill my workspace and where it is that I am employed, whether I'm the boss or simply a worker. My question, does the sweet aroma of Jesus follow you in your relationships? Father, what a neat privilege to be able to open up your word, hear your heart, hear your mind, hear your will. And so, God, I'm so grateful that in Christ, we have everything that we need for forgiveness, fulfillment, freedom, that we are hidden in Christ, and that, God, when hidden in Christ, we can have absolute security. And God, that hidden in Christ, the peace of Christ can rule in our life, in our heart. And that hidden in Christ, the message of Jesus can dwell richly. So God, I pray that you transform our marriages, transform our homes, and even transform our workplaces because the sweet aroma of Jesus follows us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.